All right, well, good morning. As you can tell, I am not Ben. I think Ben was supposed to finish up his, uh, his series on giving today, but he called me yesterday, and uh, apparently he's sick, as so many others are in this season. So um, I told him I'd be glad to continue First Peter, and hopefully he'll be able to come back to us in, in the next week or so. And uh, Actually, I guess it would probably be the following week, I think, because I think next week is the Lord's Supper. Yeah, so Lord's Supper's next week. So he'll probably pick up <clears throat> in weeks after that. But we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2 today. And I'm going to again attempt to try to finish the second chapter. So um, 1 Peter chapter 2. And if I haven't met you before, my name is Chris Greer and I'm one of the elders here. And it's good to see some visiting faces. 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's start reading in verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. What credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return, and while suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we do, uh, just singing that song, we do long for the day when we sing holy, holy, not because it's just words on a screen, but because we see you. And Lord, forgive us of, of not having right view of you, of not fully um, just the, grasping the essence and the uniqueness of who you are. Um, so often, Lord, our thoughts of you are so small, so minor. And the reality is, Lord, you are incomparable. You dwell in unapproachable light. Um, you alone have immortality. You alone have life in yourself. Um, Lord, your greatness is unsearchable. And so, Lord, we, we just praise you this morning that you, the God of glory, have revealed yourself to us. You've revealed yourself to sinners. You've shown us that you are the God of glory. You're the great creator and you're the great redeemer. And you're the God who is full of glory and power and also a God who is love. A God who is love, a God who, who expresses his own heart for his image bearers in giving them the most amazing gift anyone could ever get. And that's your own precious son. And, and so, Lord, that's what... Peter, in, in some ways, is articulating for us in these pages that the Lord Jesus himself gave himself for us. He laid down his life for us. He bore our sins. He, he took our place. And Lord, these, this has amazing ramifications for our present and our future. And we thank you for that. We thank you, Lord, that um, what the Lord Jesus has done on the cross still has present-day effects in our lives. And um, and we pray and hope for the lives that we talk to, like today when we go door to door sharing the gospel. Lord, we, we want the work of the power of what Jesus has done on the cross to be effective and mighty in the hearers of those today who will receive these little tracts of paper that tell the most glorious news in all of eternity. And Lord, we thank you for the glorious gospel. Lord, it's a mystery how a message can bring a human being from death to life, but we know that it's true. And we know that it's powerful. We've seen it in our own lives. 
and we've seen that it comes from you, the God who is true. And we've seen it in history as your own son demonstrated all of these acts that would undergird and give a foundation for redemption. Lord, we just thank you for all these things. Lord, as we, as we turn to your word, as we, as we think through it, we pray that you would help us to understand it, to understand the importance of it, the, the glory in it, the freedom that it brings, and uh, that we would live to righteousness, as Peter says. And, uh, and Lord, we're just so thankful that we've come to you, our shepherd, our guardian. Lord, we haven't just come to a set of doctrines, we've come to a person. And we praise you for that. So Lord, be pleased now, we pray, to be our teacher. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, 1 Peter 2, 18 and following. So this morning, we're going to be primarily looking at the end of verse 24 and 25. So, but before I do that, let me do a hopefully brief review, but it's been a few weeks since I've been here, so if you haven't been, uh, been with us, I'll explain a little bit about what I talked about last time, but I pretty much isolated and talked about the beginning of verse 24, and that passage says, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, or the cross. I like tree better, has more Old Testament rootage, I think that's better translation. But that's what I talked about primarily last time. So just a couple points here by way of review. Last week, um, or last time we were together, I pointed out that the text says here that Jesus himself, he himself bore our sins, that it was the Son of God personally, by himself, that bore our sins. He was there as both priest and sacrifice. He brought nothing with him except himself. He himself bore our sins. I pointed out that this bearing of sins, as Peter says, has Old Testament roots. That whole language of bearing has roots in the Old Testament of the high priest bearing the names of the children of Israel on his shoulders and over his heart, showing that the priest represented them, represented the people when atonement was being made and when judgment was being meted out for the sake of the people through sacrifice. I also pointed out that the priest himself did not personally bear the sins of the people experientially. He didn't feel the guilt-bearing experience of, of those sins. He did not know what it was like to bear our sins in his body. He bore them symbolically on his clothing, so to speak, on his apparel, but knew nothing of what it meant to bear them in his body, but Jesus does. He completely fulfills what it is to feel and taste all that it means to bear the sin and the guilt of his people. And I also said that this experience of bearing sins, as I argued, is seen in Jesus certainly being physically beaten at the hands of wicked men and in his physical death. But I highlighted what I see as the apex of his suffering on the cross and that added to his physical suffering is this spiritual suffering, emotional, mental, whatever you, however you want to capture it, of Jesus bearing our sins in his body on the cross when God the Father crushed his son. And this was heard when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's interesting that we don't hear anything from Jesus' mouth while he was being beaten in terms of trying to capture or express the, the physical pain, even though it was horrific. You know it was. Horribly painful. He was a real man. The only cry we hear of The only anguish we hear expressed is when the father forsook his son. This is when Jesus exclaims, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now it's interesting that this experience of Jesus was captured 800 years earlier. The whole cross was captured 800 years earlier in Isaiah 53. But in specific, this this whole idea of the father forsaking his son or crushing his son was captured through the pen of Isaiah 800 years earlier. Isaiah uses phrases like, Our griefs he himself bore. He bore our griefs. Our sorrows he carried. Smitten of God. What does it mean to be smitten of God? You know the word smite, sort of the old language of to hit. And who hit him? Well, men certainly hit him. But who else hit him? God his Father. Smitten of God. I was thinking about that in Genesis 22. You know that... That whole episode there of Abraham and Isaac. How gripping that picture is when 
Isaac is carrying the wood on his back up the hill with his father. And his father there, as Isaac comes to the top of the hill, lays upon the altar, and his father Abraham, in obedience to the will of God, has the knife, and the knife is raised, and you're there like, what? You know, and then finally the Lord says, don't go through with it. What a picture that is, isn't it? But the difference is, on the cross, the Father laid it down. That's the difference. The climax was pulled in Genesis 22, but it was fully meted out on the cross. The Father crushed his son. And Isaiah says that he was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. And as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. This experience of abandonment of his father was a crushing load to his soul. And this, I argued, is the essence of what it is to taste death. Separation, alienation from the goodness and the love of God is the essence of hell. And Jesus drank that cup to the bottom for us. Now, I did receive a question about Jesus' physical death when he breathed his last. And the question was that the way I argued in that message made it seem like the physical death was not a part of the atonement or was just a logical necessity, but sort of anticlimactic. So I just want to make it clear that the physical death was absolutely necessary for atonement to be made. This was actually the culmination and finish line of the work of Christ. My point in the message was just that the just wrath of God was already being poured out on Christ before the physical death. But the death is the, f- the vital last step to complete this momentous work. So I hope that that's, hope that that's clear. He had to physically die. Now this morning I want to look a little bit further here as, what, as, as Peter has talked about Christ bearing our sins and to look a little bit more now at the purpose of Christ bearing our sins. Christ bearing our sins is the basis of our, basis of our forgiveness and acceptance with God. Right? Not our works, what Christ has done. That one act of obedience. And yet, it's basis, but there's also a purpose for it. And this purpose, Peter lays out for us at the end of verse 24. He says, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. So Peter, flowing out of this reality of Christ bearing our sins, Peter attaches a purpose to that. He says, so that. There is purpose to it. And he's going to talk to us about it has purpose for us in the present, purpose for our own lives now. The cross is effective. It does something. It does something for each one of us. The Lord has intention in it. Jesus bearing our sins brings a guaranteed result in the lives of people for whom he died. And what is that result? They die to sin and live to righteousness. That's what he says. So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Or as the ASV says, having died to sin, you might live to righteousness. That's the result of the cross. The result of the cross is a transformed life. That's what the cross does. The cross brings forgiveness, praise God, but it also brings a transformed life. I was reading briefly, um, scanning the news, I saw an article that said, Billy Joel, amazing transformation. And I was like, you know, as a Christian, I read it and I'm like, this guy gets saved? And I was, and I was looking up, I was like, what happened to him? And it said, he lost 50 pounds. And I was like, you know, good for him. <laughs> Nothing really that, I mean, that's great for Billy Joel, right? But at the end of the day, that's not the kind of trans- transformation we're talking about here. We're talking about a transformation that's down to your, your, your soul. To transform a human being from someone who loves sin 
to now loving righteousness. To transform an individual that, that could, couldn't care less about God and Jesus Christ to transforming that person into a person who is fixated and cannot get enough of that same God in Jesus Christ. This work of Jesus Christ on the cross has certain effects and impacts in our lives, and it is that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Now, this language of having died to sin, it, it, carries, it certainly carries this, this idea that, yeah, positionally, we died with Christ to sin. There is, a, there is an element that's true to that, meaning that we'll no longer face the penalty due to sin. But I don't think that's Peter's main point here. Because here he's talking about us living in righteousness. He's, he's talking about our behavior. The, like I said, the, the effect of the work of the cross is not only our forgiveness, but it brings with it a power to change our perspective and disposition to sin. The terminology here in Peter's words, having died to sin conveys this past tense reality that when these people became Christians, they died to sin's power and grip. And Peter says this is tied to Jesus' sin-bearing. It's tied to the cross. Peter assumes that if you're in Christ, you died to sin. Sin is no longer your master. In other words, this text is not primarily about justification, it's about sanctification, or it's about both, and one flows out of the other, however you want to see it. But, but he wants to fixate your mind on the fact that your transformed life, your life now to righteousness, is because of the cross. The cross has brought about the power for us to say no to sin. Or be dead to sin, as Peter says. Dead to it. The assumption here is once we were alive to it. Right? We lived by what it said. It, we lived by what it told us to do. It tells us to click the button, we'll click the button. It tells us to spout off in anger and we'll obey. It tells us to complain nonstop and we'll complain nonstop. It tells us these things, Right? We lived by sin's dictates, very much alive to sin. We loved sin. We listened to our flesh all day, every day. But when Christ paid for sin 2,000 years ago, he guarantees in his death for sin, our death to sin. And now if we're in Christ, we don't live by sin's dictates. It's, It's dead to us. You know, you think of relationships where, you know, Maybe in some movie or some dramatic teen saga, the girl says to the boy that's utterly, you know, destroyed her, emotionally broke up with her, whatever, she says, what, you're dead to me. But that's kind of the idea. You're dead to me. No relationship anymore. My perspective, my disposition toward the other is like they are not alive. Sin is dead to us, brethren. We are to view sin as if it is not alive to us. When it tries to speak to us, we ignore it. When it tries to lure us away, we say, you're dead to me, right? You're dead to me. Now, Paul captures a similar sentiment in Romans 6. Some of you probably are thinking about Romans 6. Romans 6, 1 through 7. Paul anticipates people having a wrong conclusion from his doctrine of free grace and justification by by grace through faith, thinking that now your life And the transformation of your life, living in righteousness, is optional. Or perhaps even, maybe there's even something good about you sinning because it brings glory to God and causes His grace to be highlighted. And Paul says, that's wrong logic. Romans 6.1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Is that what you think I've been saying? Verse 2, may it never be. 
How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be like him in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. You see what's going on there. When Jesus was on the cross, he was dying with reference to sin, our sin. Our sin, our particular sin, not just sin in the abstract, but Tim's sin, Chris's sin, Alex's sin. That's what Jesus was doing there. He was paying for your sin. So that when you become a, a Christian, the reality is that that, that that old man Chris has been put away and now it's no longer that old Chris who lives. That's what Paul is getting at here. That Jesus' death to sin is our, guarantees our death to sin. He who has died is free from sin. Therefore, it makes no sense for you to live a life calling yourself a Christian and there's no no change in your life. If it's still the old man, there's no reality of what Paul is getting at here. Christ's death was with reference to sin and he guarantees that when we become believers, sin's power is broken in our lives. But back to Peter, it's not simply that we're saying no to something now. It's not simply that we're saying no to sin. We're actually saying yes to something. We are saying yes to the righteousness of God. See, we close our ears off to one thing and we open our ears up to another thing. And we open our ears up to God's standards. We open our ears up to what God has to say. And God has given us his word, right? And so now we know what he's, he says. And now his standards have become our standards. We want to hear what he has to say. P- Peter says here, having, been, having died to sin, that we might live to righteousness. Righteousness simply meaning that we do what is right according to God's word. In, in 1 Peter 3 it's really the contrast between right and wrong. You're persecuted for righteousness. And he says, don't do what is wrong. I was trying to find that. Yeah. Verse 17, verse chapter 3. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. <laughs> well, right from whose perspective? Well, right from God's perspective. Of course. This is now our disposition. We are now saying yes to the Lord and his standards. We listen to him now. We seek him now. We behold him now in his word. We're alive to him. This is the effect of the cross. Peter wants these believers to know that while the cross is a a past event, its power is seen in the present obedience of his people. And Peter's already told us the mechanics of this in chapter 1. In other words, how does this work? I mean, there's the cross, there's what Christ did there, and then there's the fact that we have transformed lives. What, what, what's, going, what's happened there between then and now? What's, what's happened there? Well, Peter gives us a glimpse of this already in chapter 1, and he's told us, look here, that we are elect, the end of verse 1 there, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. See, the Holy Spirit has set us apart. That's positionally, right? He does that for us. But now the Spirit is, our Spirit has indwelt us so that now we what? Obey Jesus Christ. So it's at the cross where Christ sort of wins for us and purchases for us this blessed Holy Spirit who he pours out on us richly, which makes us obedient children, makes us live to righteousness. So the cross, Jesus bearing our sins, is that which affects 
our death to sin. And through that, we're sort of raised as well with him to love righteousness. Now we serve the Lord in righteousness because the Spirit has come and given us new desires. Again, Paul has very similar language. If if you kept reading in Romans, in Romans 6, he goes on, starting in verse where we left off, verse 8, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. In Romans 8, again, tied to the cross of Christ, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering from sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So what is that? That's the cross, right? Of course. Where Christ was condemned, sin was condemned in the flesh of Jesus Christ, in the body of Jesus Christ. Why? So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see how it's all tied together. We are guilty. Christ takes our guilt. We are unable, weak, to live out the requirement of the Lord to love Him, to love neighbor. And the cross affords us this blessed Holy Spirit so that now we walk according to the Spirit. It's amazing. Therefore, what are, we, what are we saying here? Ultimately, all we're saying here is that it's not like there are all these separate activities, you know? I mean, they are, but they're all linked. They're all dependent on each other. Right? It's not like you have some that are transformed, you know, but, but it has no connection to the cross and some are it's the cross that brings about this transformation we owe all to Christ's work on the cross our right standing our good works in the present and our eternal future are all guaranteed by the cross of Jesus Christ Paul sums it up well in a couple passages where again the cross and his changed life are in view I mean listen to the language here and again, I, just, I say these things because I want this to become our glory. I want this to become our boast. If we do things good, we can see it immediately tied back to what Christ has done. Right? Galatians 2.20, very popular verse, but listen to it. I have been crucified with Christ. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. When Paul is thinking about the life he now lives by faith, he cannot help but see the cross as the culprit and cause of the new life he now lives. He in some way sees himself on that cross with Jesus, crucified with Christ. The old Paul, dead in trespasses and sins, walking according to the course of this world, died with Jesus and is now buried with Jesus and is now raised with Jesus. Therefore, Paul says he no longer lives. You know, no longer. Do you have an old person, an old man? Do you have an old man that you say, that guy, that girl is dead? Do you have an old man that, that you can say, oh, he was crucified, she was crucified? If you can't say that, then the cross has had no impact in your life. The Spirit has not come and made you new. 
Think about that. Paul sees the cross as that which killed him and his allegiance to the world and that which gains him union with Christ from which all the spiritual blessings of God now flow, including obedient, the obedient life of faith, the life of faith now. Listen to Galatians 6.14. I mean, it's strong language. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which, there it is, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So not only does Paul see himself as crucified, but there's a sense in which through the cross, the world has been crucified to Paul. It means the world now is dead to Paul. Through the cross. He thinks, he thinks of all the things he could boast in. Maybe Paul could boast in all the successes he has had in ministry planning church after church, experiencing the power of God in preaching, experiencing the the clarity of thought by the Spirit teaching the Word, or maybe he could boast in seeing his own faithful adherence to the Scriptures over the years, as he's seen so many make shipwreck of their faith. Or maybe he he could boast about the fact that he has stayed morally faithful, by, by and large, in his personal life. And yet he says, I will not boast in any of these things. I will only boast in the cross. And it certainly doesn't mean that Paul didn't boast or glory in anything, right? Else, he, de- he does. He, he actually tells the Thessalonian church, you're my crown of boasting. He says that. He, he, he glories in, in, in the faithfulness of when the people of God are walking in truth. He says that. He even boasted in his unwavering commitment to the gospel through extreme and ongoing suffering to the Corinthians to prove that he's legit. But what's his point? His point is here, though, that all of that, all the legitimate successes in his life are due to one momentous event. And what is it? It's the cross. There is no more important event in human history. It is the towering event over all other events in human history. And when you become a Christian This becomes your perspective. This orients your entire thinking over history to where now you don't see it's just the history of men's actions and kingdoms rising and falling. You see it's the history of redemption. Paul says, man, never boast except in the cross. The cross is that which has killed Paul, his allegiance to the world, so much so that Paul no longer lives according to the dictates of the world. Do you? Do you live according to the dictates of the world? Has the world been crucified to you? Do you still find yourself drawn into the lusts and the priorities of the world? The vainglory, the materialism, the quest for nonstop leisure and the storing up of treasures on earth. Paul says, it's not that Paul couldn't enjoy things, right? He said, I've learned to enjoy a lot. I've I've learned to be in humble circumstances. He can appreciate the gift of God, but, but he knows, he's not duped anymore thinking that those things are ends, that those things are ultimate, that those things are are. Are, are vital for contentment. Those things don't, don't ultimately matter. All that matters is, are you crucified with Christ? That's what matters. The cross is still everything to Paul. You know, you think about that. Galatians is probably a pretty early book, relatively speaking, but even after, you know, however long it's been, what, 15, 16, 20 years, I can't remember the dates. Paul is still glorying in the cross after his conversion. It's still become, it still is everything. In other words, you know, it's easy for us when we first become believers, isn't it? It's easy for us, but we must still see it as our everything. We can't ever move away from it. And we should be, I don't want to ever move away from it. Because we see there that it's our, it's our glory. 
And Peter goes on to say that we might live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. So here Peter reiterates the reality that his wounds are what brought healing. His death brings us life. His wounds captured in physical suffering, no doubt, at the hands of men and the suffering of his soul under the wrath of his father. These wounds that were due to us, Jesus received, and they brought us healing. For by his wounds you were healed. It's interesting he uses the language of healing here. From what did we need healing? In what way were we sick? What was the nature of our ailment The term for being healed or healed, usually the term is in reference to physical ailment, be it sickness or a broken limb or lameness, blindness, deafness. And the idea is that the person who is sick or lame, when they are healed, is restored to wholeness. The person who's blind receives their full sight again when they're healed. The person who has an issue of blood, like in the Gospels, is healed and the blood stops flowing. The internal bleeding stops and the person is well. The person that is oppressed by the devil and demonic possession or just sort of making a a wreck of their lives under his influence is freed from the grip and and the allurements of Satan and under bondage, they're freed from that. You think about the the man with the legion of demons says he 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 was clothed in his right mind. He was made well. He was healed in a sense. This is the term, this is the concept that Peter's using. But clearly we still get sick, right? We still break limbs as Christians. So is Peter just just referring to physical ailments here? I mean, he does use a, a past tense verb. So this is something that has already happened. And again, I think we all still get sick, right? I can attest to that, you know as of late especially. What kind of healing are we talking about? In Peter's word, or in Peter's context here, it's of course a spiritual healing. It's the reality that we had no spiritual perception of the Lord or his kingdom due to our sin. That was the sickness. The sickness was a, a willful rejection and blindness and deafness and dull of heart to the Lord. We had no ears to hear. We had no eyes to see. We had no heart to love. No legs to follow him. And the Lord healed us by his wounds. Luke records a statement that sort of in a negative way illustrates Peter's use of healing here. In the passage taken from Isaiah 6, Paul in Acts 28 says of the unbelieving Jews, For the heart of this people has become dull, And with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return. And I would heal them. I would heal them. What was their sickness? Dull heart. Deaf ears. Closed eyes. You know, when you're watching Jesus heal people in the Gospels, the, the, the physical miracles are amazing. And, and, and that's, Jesus did it out of compassion. But he also does it to teach a sort of deeper, fundamental lesson about us all. And that is that we are spiritually sin-sick. And it affects the way we view life. It affects the way we listen. And it affects what we love. Earlier in Isaiah, when God is indicting Israel, he sort of gives them this this diagnosis, and he says, from head to foot, they are sick. Talking about their hypocrisy and their idolatry. But the Lord Jesus' wounds bring us healing. If you have eyes to see the Lord now, if you have ears to hear his voice, if you have a heart that loves him, 
And I know you got dry days, and I know you got dull days, and I get all that. But 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 you know, fundamentally, if 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 if, Christ, if the pers- your perspective of Christ has been flipped upside down toward now, you see He's everything. And that's because you've been healed. Isn't that wonderful that you've been healed? Your 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 greatest sickness has been dealt with. Are you healed by Christ? Has he healed you? Now Peter sort of further spells out the manifestation of this sickness in these next words. He spells out this, the manifestation of this sickness we had before we knew Jesus. He says, for you were continually straying like sheep. See, this sickness sort of manifests itself in autonomy. It, it expressed itself in going your own way, continually straying like sheep. To be let off in error, straying. That's the idea. The word stray means to be let off in error. It, means, it can mean to be, de- to be deceived, to be led away, to, do, to be a le- led away to a lie. The whole world living in a lie, living for a lie. It's so sad. You can see your your neighbors and your family members and your own children so excited about everything that ultimately doesn't matter. And they're living for a lie. It's so sad. Straying like sheep. Just, maybe it's this. Oh, maybe it's that. Or, oh, maybe it's this. Going your own way. Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Our own way is the essence of why we sin. Our own way is the fundamental basis of sin. It's our, our way rather than the Lord's way. It's the fact we live our own lives with, our, with only our own happiness in mind. And the Lord is nowhere in our thoughts in terms of his will for our lives. There's a way that seems right to man, but it ends in what? Death, right? You know, I was looking up some things on sheep. It's really interesting, but sheep will, want, will sort of wander to the edges of cliffs for certain vegetation. In this precarious, dangerous spot, they don't realize they're inches away from death. This was us before we knew Jesus. We, we just don't even realize we're on the precipice of hell. We think, oh, this is life. This feels good. Is this you now? Some of you, the only reason you're here this morning is because your family or your parents brought you. And most of you kids, you don't have a choice. You've got to come. And that's a good thing. But you know, kids, just because mom and dad bring you to church doesn't mean that you're a Christian, right? You know, if some of you would rather be doing other things rather than worshiping the Lord and, and, and listening to what Jesus has to say and what the Bible has to teach, it could mean that you're a sheep that's just going astray, going your own way. And you need to come to Jesus. You need to turn away from your own way. And he needs to be your shepherd. And Peter says this to the believers and, and to us, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. When anyone comes to Jesus, there's a sense in which it's a returning to safety. Again, sheep precarious situations they would find themselves in. When you, when you return to Jesus, when you come to Jesus, you return to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. It's a returning to safety. It's a returning to the right master. Peter wants these believers, he wants to remind them that when they, when they turned away from their own way and repented, they came, again, not to just some teachings, 
right? But they came to someone. They weren't just converted to a different way of thinking, which is true. And they didn't just adopt a new set of ethics, which they did. They didn't even just have their sins forgiven, which is absolutely amazing. They, but they actually came to a person who's called a shepherd and overseer. That's what he says. You have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. You are now back in the fold. You are in the fold. And who's the shepherd of that fold? The Lord Jesus Christ, the king of the universe. He's, he's the shepherd. Instead of living out from under the care and, and lordship of Christ, when we return, we are gathered back to him. See, Christianity is about belonging and following and being cared for by Jesus. That's another thing for you kids to remember, that Christianity is not about learning a bunch of rules in the Bible. It's about following, belonging, and loving Jesus. Belonging to and loving Jesus. That's what it's sort of fundamentally about. Because he's forgiven us our sins and shown us that following him is everything. Return to the shepherd. Listen to David. He glories in the fact that the Lord is his shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That's all you need, right? The Lord Jesus. That's all you need. He really is all you need. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Look at all that he does for us. Making us lie down in green pastures, beside still waters, restoring the soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Well, what about what about times of terror or times of hardship or what about times of difficulty? David says, Ah, oh, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You know, this is true for all of us in Jesus Christ, that we can genuinely say that goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives, even if we find out next week we have cancer. Because even those trials work to make us more like Christ. They work to show us more of who God is in Jesus Christ. We, every aspect, the good parts of our life, the hard parts of our life, they all work for our good. Surely goodness and mercy follow us all the days of our life. So he's the shepherd, but he's the guardian. It's the word for overseer. It's the idea of constant attention for the sake of preservation. He's the guardian. Oh, praise God. I don't know about you, but certain weeks, you're like, man, it's hard to go on, isn't it? Hard to believe this stuff with the same fervor that you know you ought to, with the conviction that is right and appropriate, given the the glory of the truth that it is. What's going to keep your soul finally? What's going to keep you believing finally? It's your overseer. Is your guardian. Does he stand over us as, and guard us so that we experience no danger? So that we don't know anything of conflict? Certainly not. But he is there to ensure that our faith in the midst of that conflict doesn't fail. Isn't that what he told Peter? Satan has obtained you by asking, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. That's the truth for all of us. I don't know, you know, we have to remember that or else we begin to be proud in and of ourselves. We see successes come up in our lives and we might think that we're something, but the reality is we're nothing. 
We are who we are because we have a guardian. We continue to walk the, faith, the life of faith because we have a guardian, ultimately. A preserver. An overseer. And he's there so that we're not led away into final apostasy. And he does it, he says, by his voice. He, remember he talks about, I'm the good shepherd and... and, and And my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's what it is to be the shepherd, is to make sure they don't perish. And he will make sure that all of his people will not perish. This is his ministry now. His ministry now is to keep you. Guaranteed at the cross, and now we have his oversight. Day by day. So these are amazing things, brethren. These are wonderful things. So much more could be said. The question is, have you returned to the shepherd? Do you have a guardian? Or are you without a shelter? Are you without a refuge? Hide yourself in Jesus Christ and he will be a refuge for you. Um... That way you're not facing God by yourself in the day of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we just praise you for being such a good shepherd, keeping us through life, sustaining our faith. Oh Lord, we just, we just thank you for your love and your care. We thank you that you also fill our souls so that we can say with David and agree with David that you're our shepherd and we shall not want. You provide everything we'll ever need. So Lord, forgive us of our small faith, very little faith. Increase our faith, Lord. Help our unbelief. Help us to be more effective for you. But we always know that no matter how strong we get in this life, We are who we are by the grace of God. And so ultimately, all glory and dominion, wisdom and power are yours. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.